Subtitle is made possible in part by a major grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, exploring the human endeavor. Patrick, if you were to send a message out to aliens, what form would it take? Oh boy, I have no idea. I think I'd just have to go for a message in a bottle. The message would just say, you know, we wish you no harm, despite everything you may have heard about us. <laughs> Let me try and convey to you the interstellar message that a small group of humans sent out into space 45 years ago. Oh, that's horrible. What is that? And, and please turn it off. This is a version of a famous message that was sent out from the Arecibo telescope in Puerto Rico in 1974. And it contained 1,679, very precise, zeros and ones. And more recently, someone set it to music, which is what this song of sorts is. Oh, right. So that explains why it's just two notes, the zero and the one. Mm-hmm. That's binary code, zeros and ones. So binary is used to write data for computers. But in this case, the scientists who sent out all these zeros and ones, they were hoping that an extraterrestrial who received this message would lay it out into a 23 by 73 grid. And why on earth would they do that? I mean, that's so specific. Yeah, because 1,679 is divisible by 23 and 73. Of course. Of course. And because these extraterrestrials would be advanced enough to detect the message, maybe they'd have enough math to know that. So what happens if they actually do end up making the grid? They'd see an image of sorts, and it was meant to show a few things. The Arecibo telescope, plus a human-type figure... Also, our solar system, a DNA double helix, some chemical elements, and the numbers 1 through 10. So it's like a series of messages, not just one. It's like, look what we can do. This is who we are. This is where we are. And what about the picture itself? I mean, does, it, does the picture look nice? Is it like, a, you know, Leonardo or something? <laughs> I'd say the Arecibo message looks like Pac-Man's less sophisticated cousin. Oh, gross. I mean, the the Arecibo telescope image in it looks more like the Gmail logo. Even to us now, it would be very confusing. Like, what is this message that humans who are alive today sent out? It hasn't aged well. And it's also not like we humans have intentionally sent out a lot of other interstellar messages. It's not easy to do. Plus, the ones that we have sent, they're not so different from the Arecibo message. And Arecibo is probably the best of them. But it's tough, right? I mean, like, this is a one-way street. We're sending this stuff out, we get nothing back. It's like we humans have to figure out how to play the biggest, loneliest dating game on our own. And we send out a few earnest but awkward messages, and we get nothing back. And some days it's like, well, maybe that's a blessing, because truth be told, we're pretty conflicted about sending messages to, you know, some extraterrestrials we've never met. Is that a good idea? And then on other days, it's like, No one's reaching out. Are we just destined to be alone in a vast universe, like an infinitely vast universe? From Quiet Juice and the Linguistic Society of America, this is Subtitle, stories about languages and the people who speak them. Patrick, the Arecibo message is the most famous of the messages that we humans have sent into outer space. But here's the thing about it. Basically, it was, it was a little bit of a stunt 
It was a little bit of a, let's just see if we can do this. This is Wade Rausch. He's a science and technology journalist, and he has a book coming out from MIT Press called Extraterrestrials. And also it's aimed at this globular cluster, which is 25,000 light years away. So by the time the message gets there, so much time will have passed that the cluster will have moved out of the way. In fact, it, in a way, it already has moved out. Of the way. So the point of this message was not really to communicate with anyone. It was just to show that you could do it. That's a bit presumptuous, isn't it? Just just to show that you could do it? I mean, some people would say it's crazy to think even that extraterrestrials do exist. Well, there's a lot of possibilities. One possibility is that we really are alone. And it's not, it's not inconceivable. After all, it took so much for life to get started here on Earth, and maybe we're just lucky that we've survived this long. But there's also this matter of math and probability. You know, there are over 100 billion galaxies in the universe, and our galaxy, the Milky Way, has a diameter of 100,000 light years. But that's measured in the speed of light. One light year is 10 trillion kilometers long. It's about 6 trillion miles, and I know you know this, Patrick, but there are 12 zeros in a trillion. Oh yeah, I knew that. Of course. So when you do the math and you consider the vastness of just our galaxy, let alone the universe, it seems like this little speck of dirt with 8 billion specks of human flesh, we cannot be the only technologically advanced life out there. Which brings us to Carl Sagan. The cosmos is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. Carl Sagan was one of the people behind the Arcebo message, and Wade is a big fan, as am I. He's, for me, sort of as close to a secular saint as you can get. Whoa, secular saint, that's, that's big. He was an astronomer, an astrobiologist, a cosmologist, an astrophysicist, a writer. Most of all, Carl Sagan helped elevate this conversation about the possibilities of communicating with life on other planets, and he brought that to the masses. And people like Carl Sagan kind of erred on the optimistic side. And they, their point of view was that there must be thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of other civilizations in our galaxy just waiting for us to, to reach out um, or waiting until we were ready to be contacted. And it was just a question of coming up with the right technology. What kind of technology is he talking about here? At least for listening, Wade says that radio and optical signals are the focus right now. Things like lasers, because apparently you can shine a powerful laser into space and transmit info, or nanosecond-long pulses of light, because there's very little in nature that can generate such a short light burst. So Wade says if you were to detect a nanosecond-long laser pulse, it would almost certainly be from an advanced civilization. And the radio search has been going on for 60 years now, and the optical search has been going on for 25 years. Oh, a long time. Well, maybe not in the scheme of things. Who are the people, though, that, that have got these jobs looking for extraterrestrials? It sounds like a great gig. <laughs> I'm with you. I don't think they're hiring people like us. There are a handful of groups that do this work, largely scientists, but also some military, and now there's some wealthy venture capitalists getting in on it. The SETI Institute is probably the oldest and best-known group, and SETI is the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. They used to get federal funding until the government cut that off in the early 90s. So these days, they're supported by members and wealthy donors, and their goal is to listen. So what exactly is SETI? This is Jill Tarter. She used to head up SETI. SETI uses the tools of astronomy 
to try and find evidence of someone else's technology out there. Our own technologies are visible over interstellar distances, and theirs might be as well. Tartar is one of the pioneers in the search for extraterrestrial life, and she was the inspiration for the main character in Carl Sagan's book, Contact. Oh, right, the the Jodie Foster character. Yeah, and this is from her TED Talk in 2009. All of the concerted SETI efforts over the last 40-some years are equivalent to scooping a single glass of water from the oceans, and no one would decide that the ocean was without fish on the basis of one glass of water. And now it's 2020, and Wade says that this one-glass analogy doesn't quite work anymore because we're able to listen at higher resolutions for longer periods of time and search more narrow channels to make sure nothing is missed. So we've sampled a little bit more of the cosmos, and now... It's more like like a hot tub worth of water out of the ocean, but it's still just like a hot tub compared to the ocean. So... From that perspective, you just got to keep going because we've only started this kind of search. We've only scratched the surface. But Wade brings up another issue with the current SETI approach, which is that humans have been listening in for a while and we haven't heard anything. There hasn't been even a peep. If there was, it would be world news. And so the scientists who do this work might want to try some different approaches. It might be a question of whether the media or the languages or the encoding schemes that other civilizations use are just beyond our comprehension. Or just we ha- either we can't comprehend them yet, or we haven't invented them yet, or we haven't stumbled across them yet, or just we haven't evolved to the point where we're capable of listening in. And I think that is a linguistic question on some level. So it sounds like we're kind of looking for love in all the wrong places. <laughs> like, like, you know, we're looking for radio signals and lasers from extraterrestrials, but if there's other life out there, they may be communicating in totally different ways, much more advanced ways. Right, and so maybe it's time to reassess. I'm starting to think myself that there's something just fundamentally missing, and we're not gonna have any success until we step back a couple of steps and start rethinking how aliens, how extraterrestrials might communicate. How might they communicate? Like this? That's after the break. Subtitle is a proud member of Hub and Spoke. It's a collective of energetic, idea-driven podcasts. It includes Soonish, the podcast from Wade Rausch. Yes, who we're hearing from in this episode. It also includes Open Source, the world's first and still longest-running podcast. I've been listening to host Christopher Lydon for a long time. I love the way he surprises and challenges his guests. There's a wonderful recent episode, which is a conversation with Arthur Kleinman, psychiatrist and first-hand observer of Alzheimer's, which, if you, like me, if you've ever been close to someone with Alzheimer's or dementia, you'll want to hear it. Check out Open Source and all of the Hub and Spoke shows at hubspokeaudio.org. Patrick, my mom once took a taxi with a driver who said, when you assume, you make an ass out of you and me. Do you get it? No. Like A S S U M E. It turns out that we humans make a lot of assumptions about what communicating with extraterrestrials would entail. 
the most of the things that I do when I'm thinking about building a message are sort of hunting down my assumptions and trying to destroy them one by one. This is Sherry Wells Jensen. I'm a professor of linguistics at Bowling Green State University, and I teach linguistics and I study astrobiology and disability studies. And one of her research interests is xenolinguistics. I say xeno. I say xeno, you say xeno. Let's call the whole thing off. So I'm guessing it's an X right at the Mm -hmm. beginning. What is xenolinguistics? It's the linguistics of aliens. And if we have any hope of ever communicating with extraterrestrials, Sherry says that we first got to break a lot of assumptions. If I make a message and I think, oh, well, they will obviously display this on a view screen. And then, or if I want to talk about stars, they've obviously seen the stars. And then I have to think, wait, 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 wait. What if they don't look? What if vision is not their primary way of of accessing the world? Because even though the 7,000 or so human languages can seem so different from one another, they have some core things in common. All of human languages are products of human brains and products of human bodies. And the way we humans note directions, that's a good example of some core human assumptions that are based on our bodies and our earthly origins. So human language, we we tend to have, either we refer to directions by right, left, front, back. Right, left, front, back. And in some languages, they use the cardinal directions, north, south, east, west, or upstream, downstream. But that's about it. If I were a sphere with nine eyes or nine sensory organs placed around my diameter, that'd be a whole different way of perceiving the world, and I would talk about it in a whole different way. Maybe you are a creature that has seven arms, and so you have seven cardinal directions. So you don't have left, right, front, back. You've got, like, my first right and my second right and my <laughs> my my 280-degree direction. You know, you know what I mean? Like, you divide the space seven ways. How would that affect things. I think I can see what Sherry's doing there. Seven arms. That That's from a movie, isn't it? Right, right. There's no way we could do this episode without talking about Arrival. There are days that define your story beyond your life. Like the day they arrived. Arrival is based on a short story by Ted Chang called Story of Your Life. And it, it's about the arrival of these aliens who kind of look like a cross between spiders and octopuses, but with seven limbs, and they're huge, so the humans call them heptapods. And Amy Adams plays the brilliant female linguist who's called upon to have first contact with the aliens and save humanity from itself. We don't know if they understand the difference between a weapon and a tool. Our language, like our culture, is messy, and sometimes one can be both. And it's quite possible that they're... That's the fictional linguist. Sherry Wells Jensen, our real linguist, is a fan of Arrival. But like anyone whose profession is depicted on a screen, she takes issues with certain things. And her biggest objection was that the humans seem to be in control of communicating with the heptapods. Okay, so here you have a species that knows how to build a spaceship and actually come to Earth. They're going to be like, okay, gang, it's a type four planet. They're this smart. It's, it's method six. We're not in charge. We are such a young species. We just sent our first intercontinental radio message in 1901. They're going to have a plan. Right. We are the newbies here. So to think that we are going to be in charge of this interaction is crazy socks. Yeah, that's a really good point. 
I, I also remember that they drop in a linguistic hypothesis as, as like a plot device. Yes, the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. You know, I was doing some, some reading um, about this idea that if you immerse yourself into a foreign language that you can actually rewire your brain. Yeah, the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. Hmm. The theory that... Um, it's, it's the theory that uh, the language you speak determines how you think and... Yeah, it affects how you see everything. It was, uh, I'm curious, are you dreaming in their language? That's Jeremy Renner with Amy Adams. He plays a physicist who's also pulled in to meet the aliens. So so, so what's the deal with the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis? I've kind of forgotten. It's originally a 19th century idea, and it's named after a 20th century linguist, Edward Sapir, and his student, Benjamin Lee Whorf. And it suggests that the languages you speak shape your worldview. And that is simultaneously very true and not true at all on different levels. Sherry says there isn't a huge amount of research to support the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. It gets disputed for the way that it's been applied to human language. But she thinks that it could be helpful when it comes to trying to communicate with beings that have evolved in very different ways. So all human languages were developed in a place where the people moving around on the surface of the earth had two arms and two legs, and that the majority of them had the same sensory apparatus. So it sounds like Sherry's wondering out loud here that among the many ways that non-humans may communicate differently from us, that, that there are a couple of them that are super fundamental. One, they could have different bodies, and so use different body parts to, quote, speak. And two... Unlike humans, their form of communication may almost define them. It may almost shape them. And that's why maybe we humans may have such trouble communicating with them. It's like the dolphins, right? Is it a superior wharf problem that stops us from talking to dolphins? So this brings us to a huge question. You know, why spend time thinking about how to talk with extraterrestrials when we don't even know what the billions of animals around us might be communicating. People like Sherry and researchers with the SETI Institute, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, they agree that understanding animals would be a great step in possibly communicating with intelligent aliens. There are folks at the SETI Institute who who are looking at dolphin communication, but if you map sort of the different sounds they make and the complexity and the patterns of sounds that they make, They obey Zipp's law, which is just a a way of representing how communication, how language and some natural phenomenon differ from background noise. And so there's a great deal of complexity in dolphin communications, but we've got very little idea what the heck's going on there. And Wade Rausch, the author of Extraterrestrials, he also feels pretty passionately about this. You can't be around an animal like a dog and somehow labor under this illusion that there's nothing inside there. There's obviously something inside there. The fact that we're surrounded by other species right here on this planet who are smart enough to have thoughts and needs and emotions, but who don't use the same kinds of language as we do, I think that provides an enormous fertile field for experimentation, exploration, and like trying to figure out what it might mean to, to talk to extraterrestrials. Okay, all of this is like incredibly exciting, thinking about how we might communicate with other life in the universe. 
But I, I, there's a ton of potential dangers. I mean, we mm -hmm. all seen those alien invasion <laughs> films. What if they're more powerful than us? There are scientists who say that because we don't know what or who is out there or what they could do to us, it's better for us to just listen for possible messages, which is what SETI does and advocates for. But they're not the only folks with an opinion about this. There's MEDI International. Whoa. <laughs> MEDI stands for Messaging Extraterrestrial Intelligence. MEDI is very interested in actively trying to communicate with extraterrestrials. So who works for Medi? Well, Medi was founded by a longtime SETI researcher who left and started this newer group. And Sherry Wells Jensen is on the Medi board. <laughs> so what is Sherry's feeling about, like, actively trying to reach out to aliens then? I mean, because I, I don't know. I mean, I'm wondering if you want to reveal the location of our fantastic habitable planet to mm -hmm. creatures that might want to plunder us and do us harm. Well, some say that we've been giving away our location in a weak and unwitting way ever since we came up with radio and TV signals. But there's no good consensus on whether it's better to just listen or whether it's okay to also reach out. And so there's a seti medi debate. And I have the seti medi argument. I try to be really respectful and hear their caution because they're not wrong. And for me, it comes down to, well, who are we? Stop and think about who we are and who we want to be. We're the people that reach out. We're the people who say, I want to know what's out there. And I want to be friends. And I think that that longing for companionship is a profound part of who we are. But do you get in your boat and go adventuring to find the next shore? Or do you stay where you are? And I think that's an essential question about who you choose to be. If we finally discover that we have some neighbors, we'll have to stop thinking of ourselves as the apex of evolution, right? That could be a psychological blow. But on the other hand, I think we've been rehearsing for that eventuality for a long, long time. For a long time, I think we've mostly thought about angels and demons and deities and gods, we've always had this idea that we might not be the only conscious entities. How do I say this politely? We don't have an excess of science literacy in the United States. The greatest threat to interstellar communication, it's probably not them, whoever they are. It's probably us and our own ignorance. If a message comes in and we're not prepared culturally to understand that it's from a star and the stars are very far away. And if we don't know basic physics, we could harm ourselves. And we also have to be in a position where we have some respect for basic science. If we're still in a culture where we think, oh, global warming, that's not happening, even though science is telling us it's happening, we're gonna be in trouble when big things happen. We need to be ethically ready to ask these questions and we need to have a basic uh, substrate of scientific literacy in place so that we can talk about this like grown-ups um, and not panic. That's our show for today. Our sound designer is Tina Toby. Thanks today to the World Public Radio Program. Keep up with international news and culture every weekday. Listen on your local public radio station. Thanks also to our co-producers, the Linguistic Society of America. 
The LSA works to educate and inform people about the value of linguistics research and scholarship. We encourage you to donate to the Linguistics Society. You'd be helping support this podcast. For that, go to subtitlepod.com slash about. That's subtitlepod.com slash about. Thanks also to Julia Kumari-Drapkin, Paloma Orozco, Gina James, Amber Stark, Tom Cummings, and the engineers at WBGU-PBS. And please don't forget to rate and review us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really helps get the word out. We'll be back with another episode in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening. Subtitle is made possible in part by a major grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, exploring the human endeavor. Hub and Spoke, Audio Collective.